Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 2. You've already heard it read, so I'm not going to read the text of, that I will preach from this evening. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. You've already heard it read, and so we will simply just dive into this particular uh, passage. The sermon text is taken from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. It was in 1864, as one storyteller uh, recounts, uh, that one of America's great poets, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, wrote the poem which became the well-known carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. When this man, retelling the story, he says in the first person, when I first heard this song, I wondered, why does he suddenly shift from joy at hearing the Christmas bells into such deep despair? It starts this way. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then he says, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. The question is clearly answered when we see two verses of the original that are not included in our hymn. In these verses, Longfellow speaks of the horrors of the American Civil War that was tearing the country apart. In fact, his son had been seriously wounded in that conflict not long before he wrote the song. The death of Longfellow's wife two years earlier may have contributed to his mood as well. Listen to what they say, these unknown sections. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's little wonder he is tempted to despair. And yet he concludes with the resounding affirmation, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. To the Savior whose birth the angels celebrated, God will accomplish what he has promised. I don't think I need to go very far to remind you that we live in very much similar days. We may not be living in a nation that is torn asunder by uh, war uh, between brothers and sisters and family, a civil war as in the days of Longfellow, but we certainly live in a world that, is, that tempts us to despair at times. When we look around and we see this, not only in our own nation, but we see it in other nations, we see the evil and wicked behavior, the immorality of people, people living as, as though there is no God. But just like in our passage today, God is accomplishing his purposes. He is not aloof. He is working. He's not ignorant to the events that are taking place in our 21st century. He wasn't ignorant of the events that were taking place in the first century. He is not ignorant at all. He is doing and accomplishing his very purposes that he will accomplish. That he might bring maximum glory to his own name 
and highlight and spotlight the very glory of his son. He does that, of course, here in our passage and through the history that we so well know in the coming of Christ, in this time of the year in which we celebrate this, as it were, that we are reminded of it often, the stories that we've heard repeated time and time again, almost to the point where they lose their luster, they lose the glory, they lose that, that ringing effect that should affect every one of our hearts, that effect that was brought forth by this lowly birth, the condescension of God to earth. God adding to himself humanity in the person of Christ. Even that the triune God begins to show his glory to those he purposes to redeem. The birth of Christ, passe, ordinary, hardly. The glory of Christ is seen and witnessed in the manger itself. The God-man, God with us to save us. From our deepest need. Not a world gone insane, but our own sin. For that is why he came. He came to rescue in the fullness of time. He came to rescue helpless sinners in a world that had gone and gone crazy. Even as the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 11 highlights for us, and here we know in this context of this particular birth, a nation that was under siege by the Roman Empire, a nation that was waiting a coming king, a coming Messiah, misunderstanding his initial coming, but one that would come to rescue us, not from a nation, not from a people group, but to rescue us from ourselves. Now, the context of this birth that Luke records for us from a different perspective that Matthew does in Matthew 1 is right on the heels of the prophecy of Zechariah. I want to read that prophecy. I don't normally do this in the introduction to a sermon, but I want to read this because it does help establish or even strengthen the force of the birth that you know. And you could tell the story. Zechariah begins his song there in Verse 67, we have the words that introduce it in his father, Zechariah, that is, of course, the father, John the Baptist. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenants, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. All of this sits at the very head of The account of Luke there given in chapter 2 that we know and understand well the very birth of the one that John the Baptist will prepare the way for 
that they, you and me, might be freed from our sin. God aloof? Hardly. God ignorant as to the events of the first century? Not a chance. God ignorant of our states? Not at all. He knows what we need. And in His providence and His timing, He brings into the world His own Son that we might behold Him, worship Him, honor Him, that we that through Him might find hope in a world wrecked by sin. And so this evening I want to show you the providence of God in bringing, uh, bringing forth His Son and the good news of great joy that should be pervasive in our hearts. I want to show you the providence of God in bringing forth His Son and the good news of great joy that should be pervasive in our hearts. Two points as we consider these 14 verses. Very simple outline. First, we'll consider the providence or the providence of God. The circumstances, the setting, the events, all that was going on around the birth of Christ and then we will see the proclamation. How do people, how do men, how should men respond to this work of providence wrought by God himself? First, let's consider the providence of God. The setting is quite obvious as Luke records it for us. He gives us these details as he is, as he is prone to do. He's an historian. He's a doctor. He's specific. He's exacting. This is really volume one of his two-part book on the work of Christ and the work of the apostles. This is known as volume one. You know that Acts would be volume two. Luke writes this to give an orderly account of the events of Christ, the things that he has done. And so there's no surprise that he gives us more detail than some of the other gospel accounts of which we read about in Matthew 1. But he tells us right up front in the setting of this entire event of which we know as the birth of Christ that there was a registration that took place. Now, this isn't an accident. It's all part of law. It's all part of the law of the land that a Roman registration was required of every man in Israel to return then, therefore, to their ancestral home that they might be registered. Now, that means that the parents of Jesus, primarily Joseph and Mary, of course, are going to have to return. They're going to have to travel. They're going to have to go somewhere. They are not living where they need to be. They need to go back to where they grew up and register themselves in that place. Certainly no accidents. Because it will be in that place, that place we know as Bethlehem, that Christ would be born in accordance with the prophecies of old. Currently, presently, they are not there. God in his providence has to move them to this location, all orchestrated by divine providence. There's a lineage that Luke points out for us as well here in the passage. You see that in verse 4. There that he, Joseph, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Joseph is mentioned here in the context of the city of David, that place of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is of the house and lineage of David. This is not, again, accidental. He is in that line, that covenantal line that was established long ago, that through that line, this one that would be born to him, born to his wife, Mary, would be in that kingly line, prophesied of old. That he would fulfill then, therefore, that prophecy given to David, the Davidic covenants, and he might sit on the throne of David, a kingdom that will have no end. So we have the registration divinely ordered by God in providence to move the people to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. We have the lineage mentioned here to remind us that this babe that is about to be born is no ordinary baby, but he is a king. Not a king of this world so much, but a kingdom that is not of this world and a kingdom that will have no end. This, of course, fulfills the prophecy that was given to us even in Micah 5, verse 2. This child needed to be absolutely without discussion, had to be born, had to be of the house in line of David. So that's the setting. So much for that. God in his providence is working all of the affairs, all the details out that he might accomplish everything that he's long ago said would occur in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as they make this journey, we have some results that show up from this. Again, under an act of divine providence, we have the place upon which they are going to dwell or reside. Of course, we know this well. We know that they came to a place, to, a, to, a, to an inn, and there was no room for them there. We know that Jesus was born, of course, in a manger, in a very lowly place. I'm coming to that in a minute. But there was no place, no ordinary place, for the Son of God to be born. There was no vacancy in the hotel. Imagine if you were traveling and were tired and needed a place to rest and pulled into a hotel and found that there was no place to lay your head, and then you went down the street to the next hotel, and then the next hotel, and then the next hotel, and the next hotel. Eventually, you'd probably just give up and find a rest area and park your car and go to sleep. Well, in some sense, this is precisely what happens to Mary and Joseph. She is near that point of giving birth. There's not a lot of time to mess around. There's no place in the inn, that comfortable place, a guest room, as it were, could be easily translated And so instead they opt out for this very lowly place, as we have it there in verse 7, the place of a manger. The birth itself is given to us. It's given really in stark contrast to the world powers that exist in the time of the birth of Jesus. We know that Caesar Augustus is ruling. A decree went out, verse 1, from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The worldly power of Caesar and the Roman Empire is dominating the landscape. And in the face of that that world domination of Rome comes this one, this baby. And I suspect Luke sets it this way, that we might see an apparent weakness of the baby Jesus. Now I underscore the word apparent there on purpose Apparent weakness. He's contrasting the world powers of Caesar with the kingly power of the Lord himself, the Son of God, the creator of the world. 
Jesus deserved, didn't he, a, a royal welcome. But what does he get instead? He receives a welcome in a manger, in a barn, as it were, surrounded by animals. Most of you, in fact, I would dare to say all of you, going out on a limb, were probably born in much better conditions. Jesus was not. In contrast to the, the, the Roman emperor, in contrast to the worldly powers of Caesar, Jesus, who should have received a royal welcome, receives the lowliest of births that one can possibly imagine. It highlights for us really the irony of the incarnation, the irony of the birth of Christ, the maker of the universe who owned it all. He who made all things visible and invisible. He who was even ordering all of these events. Let's think about that for a few minutes. It might give you a headache. Can't find a single place to be born. The owner of all things, the maker of the universe who owned it all, could not even find a room in which he would be born. What does this birth and the circumstances all ordered by the providence of God in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, what does it tell us? These lowly conditions, all of them, what do they highlight for us as we think through this time and the year in which we hear the same stories told over and over. Well, first, it tells us of the depravity of our, own, of our own sin. He came to his own, and his own received him not, John tells us in John chapter 1. He was rejected at his birth. No room in the inn. Sorry, pregnant Mary, I'm sorry, but no place for you today. He was rejected at his birth. He was rejected throughout his ministry. He was rejected in his trial. The question, of course, for us this evening is, do you reject him? Do you reject this Savior that came in these humble conditions and these humble ways in great contrast to the world powers around him? Do you reject him or have you embraced him? The world tomorrow is going to wake. And they're going to do what they do. The day is going to come and the day is going to go. The question is, as it happens, will they miss the Lord of glory? Will they miss this baby born in these abject, humble conditions? Will they miss the glory that is present on that evening in which the Son of God entered our world in our time and space? Not only does it highlight for us the depravity of our own sin, it highlights for us the humanity of the Savior. You see, he was born. I know you think, well, you went to seminary to learn that. He was born. There was a childbirth that occurred. Luke tells us that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. He was born. It wasn't some birth that was unusual in the sense of childbirth. Nine months, she gave birth. I'm sure it was painful. I'm sure she went through labor. I'm sure she didn't have all the benefits of modern science. I'm sure it was hard. 
It was an earthly experience. He entered the world just like any other person. Just like you did and like I did. Maybe he didn't seem to be a human being, but he was a human being. He entered this world and deliberately and intentionally took to himself our flesh, our humanity, yet without sin, that he might rescue us from our sin. Throughout the history of the church, there's been a great plea, a great struggle in the defense of the deity of Christ, and rightly so. But I suspect and am fearful that oftentimes we lose sight of this truth. While we are busy defending the very deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we must do that, we must never forget that he was a man, that he was just like me without sin itself. He got tired and weary, hungry even. He cried. He hurts at the affairs of the world around him. He lamented over Jerusalem, wept for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He felt pain as they drove those nails through his hands, as they pierced him with that spear, all of it. He was a man. He was born as a man into our world that he might save us from our sin. We know this as the incarnation, the adding on to himself, flesh. The way it is structured, of course, is that it's, it's... it's that, well, you've heard of chili con carne, is chili with meat on. This is God with meat on. God with flesh on. The second person of the Godhead became a real man, just like you and me, except without sin. But why is that so important? Why does it matter? Well, he had to become like one of us in order to save us. Salvation comes through faith in God incarnate, the Son of God who lived and died and lives again in true humanity. That true humanity that he still possesses today. You might not be aware of that as he dwells at his Father's right hand right now. As we noted this morning, praying for the needs of his people. He still has that body that he was born with. He looks like his mother. He has her DNA. He looks like you and me. He's a person with two legs and two arms and two eyes and two ears and a nose and a mouth and a mind. Glorified indeed. But he is still a man. He is the God-man. This is the one that was born to Mary there on that day, that place in which they found no place in the end, there in that lowly condition, the God of heaven, the second person of the triune Godhead, subjects himself to the weakness of human flesh that he might save us, save you 
from sin. His childbirth was an earthly experience. It highlights the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead, and it shows for us the glory of something of his person. The glory very much of this birth. The one who took to himself human flesh is indeed the God of heaven. The glory of Christ was not reduced by his birth, but it was exemplified. For it was in the will and sovereign pleasure of his Father in heaven to give to sinners all this one, his Son, thus bringing glory to his Father through all that he did, including this birth, this act of condescension, that he might save us from our sin. In grace and truth, he displayed his glory by entering a world of sin to save those in sin from the just wrath of a holy God. Not only does this highlight the depravity of our own nature and our great need, for if we had no need of a Savior, we would not have one. But we do. It highlights the very depravity of our sin, the humanity of Christ, and the glory of His birth itself that highlights the glory of the triune God. But there's more. It's not just our depravity. It's not just His humanity. But it's also the glory of Christ seen in His humility. The humility of the Savior, God who is infinitely superior to us. He is altogether different than us. He is the creator. We are the creatures. I think sometimes we reverse that. Now, He is God. Now, let me clue you in this first seminary lesson. There is a God, and you are not Him. This God who is all glorious and all beautiful and all majestic and all wise and all powerful and all the things that we know about the triune God, He is infinitely superior to us, but yet, yet in that, He willingly condescends to us. He descends from the throne of heaven, adds to Himself humanity, born in abject humility, Brothers and sisters, it was an act of infinite condescension that the God of heaven would even bother to save sinners in a manner in which it can only be done through the humiliation of the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. This condescension brought glory to His Father in heaven And it ushers in or brings to us, it brings forward to us the glory of Christ as he sought to do his Father's will for helpless people. The manger itself, as mentioned here in Luke's account, represents the abject humiliation of the Son of God. Shorter Catechism 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? It consisted in his being born. That's it, just stop there. 
You might not think about the, the fact that Christ being born is an act of great humiliation. You've had children, you see, and you don't consider it that way at all. But for the Son of God, the Lord of glory, to be born into this world was an act of great humiliation for him. That's in a low condition. Not in the Hilton. Not in a five-star hotel. Not in some, shang, some place of, of great riches. But in a barn, if you will. Maybe a cave. It depends on who you read. Low condition. Adding to himself that human flesh, your flesh, mine, made under the law. To say that he subjects himself now to the very law that he wrote, to the very law that he gives. He voluntarily, willingly, in this act of condescension, in this birth, places himself under the very law of God himself, undergoing the miseries of this life. The miseries that you and I experience. No, he did not sin, of course, for he could not do that. But as I've already highlighted, the various things that we experience in our human condition, sorrow and suffering and pain and agony and all of those things. What are those things? As our catechism tells us, the very wrath of God himself. Knowing full well that as he enters this world and takes to himself in this great act of condescension, knowing full well as he comes, he will experience the wrath of God in a way that you can't possibly imagine. You can't even consider. There are, there are no words that adequately describe the wrath that God poured out on his son for your sake. Knowing that that's what would happen. He comes and humbles himself under the wrath of a holy God, his own father, the cursed death of the cross, being buried. Imagine, the Lord of glory, the eternal son, buried in the ground. Okay, I know it was a cave. Don't get carried away. A borrowed tomb. And continuing under that power of death for a time. All of it's an act of great humiliation. All of it a great, an act of great condescension on behalf of sinners that he came to serve. The real question for you this evening is, do you know anything about this Savior? You see his glory in the manger. You see his glory in his act of condescending to your lowly estate. Do you know Christ tonight? Because if you don't, this is just a holiday. This is just a nice day that I don't have to go to work. If you don't know Christ today, you stand subjected to the very wrath of God yourself. If you've placed your hope and trust in this Savior who has humbled himself in this way, then you avoid all of that wrath that God brings against sinners. He came to serve. 
He started his service the minute, the second he was conceived in the womb. That's how we're called to live. You're never more like Christ than when you're serving. We are called to live this way in in humility, not in honor, but in serving. Not in pride, but in humility. All those who name the name of Christ serve and live lives of humble reliance on the truly humble one. Christ serves. He condescends. He descends. The Lord of glory. All of it for our sake. All of it orchestrated by the providence of God that we might respond to it. You see, this isn't a cute story we just tell at this time of the year. This story, this birth, this act of providence, this act of condescension is designed to invoke from people a response. The response is given to us in the text. We note that there, as the beginning in verse 8, working our way through verse 14, as the shepherds are out there in the field... An angel of the Lord appears, and they're afraid, of course, and you would be too. That's not something that happens every day. And as they hear the message of the angel, how do they respond? And how do the heavenly hosts respond to the news of the condescending work of Christ himself to sinners? Well, we have it there in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace among those with whom... He is well pleased. The setting of this proclamation occurs really in a lowly condition, a lowly situation. The first people, think of this, the first people to hear the good news, the gospel itself, are shepherds. Now I've got to tell you, shepherds were not regarded as, uh, well, upwardly mobile in the world's economy in those days. They are pretty much outcasts. They live out in the field. They stink. They have a dirty job. And they're the first ones to hear the gospel of hope proclaimed in their ears. You see, the gospel is not for the rich or the elite. Jesus didn't come to rescue those who have no need of rescue the ones that think they don't anyway. He came to rescue the poor and the miserable. The gospel is for working class sinners. The gospel is not for good people. It is for the outcasts and lowly of this life. It's for those who, like these shepherds, know they need a Savior. A Savior that is pronounced and announced to them here in this passage It strengthens the line of David because David was a shepherd himself. The king of Israel, the most renowned king of Israel, was a shepherd first. The king of glory is also a shepherd. And the first people to hear the message of hope are shepherds themselves. The outcasts of the world And as they are there, they have this event, the appearance of the angels that announce to them this news. And the myriad of of angels then appear and 
heavenly hosts singing glory to God in the highest for the great work of condescension by Christ himself. And so they're told not to fear. Don't you worry. There's no reason to be afraid because good news has come to you. And it is good news. Good news that has come in the face of abject misery in the world. Good news that has come in the face of of calamity and sorrow and misery. Good news that comes in the face of our sin. Good news that should lead to great joy. Because there in that city of David, a Savior is born. No ordinary Savior, the Savior of sinners. There in that manger, through no ordinary birth and no ordinary circumstances, the union of God and man, the deity with humanity, lies in the manger. The glory that God shares with no man is now shared with man, a man, the man, Jesus Christ uh, himself. It's a proclamation that we must utter as well. As we reflect upon the birth of Christ again, I don't know how old every one of you are. I'm 57. I've had 57 Christmases. Yes. Had a check real quick. I know the story. I know it well. How do we respond to it? We must give praise to the glory of Christ as shown in his act of condescension to sinners. For he had no reason, on his own, under no compulsion, to leave the glory of heaven for you. But he did anyway. He came and started where you started, as a baby who grew who lived, who served, who suffered, who died, was buried and raised, and now is ministering still for you in his Father's right hand. God accomplished this work through his acts of providence and through our response of proclamation to the glory of God God accomplishes the incarnation. We read about it as events that have occurred. We look forward to the second coming when all of God's purposes are accomplished. He is the God of providence. Therefore, we trust Him. And what is it about the glory of Christ as the baby in the manger that should capture our interest even this evening? It's easy to miss. I'm just going to quote from Owen because I really couldn't do any better than him anyway, nor would I try. What does he say? And I've edited it slightly. First, by beholding the glory of Christ as the newborn babe, we shall become like him, transformed into the very same like image of him. Second, by beholding the glory of Christ as the newborn babe, we shall find rest for our souls. Peace and goodwill to men is pronounced there in our passage. Peace for restless people. And third, and finally, by beholding the glory of Christ as the newborn babe, we shall begin to experience what it means 
to be everlastingly blessed. It all began right here in the city of David, in a manger, in a lowly condition, in abject circumstances, in a hostile world that he came to his own, of whom they would reject him and ultimately crucify him. It all began there, that you might behold him and might be rescued from yourself. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your, your act of infinite kindness to sinners. And while we confess to you that we know these stories, we know these events, we can tell them inside and out, backwards and forwards, we ask that you would help us by your Spirit, that we would truly behold the glory of Christ in taking to himself our own flesh, that he might rescue us from ourselves. We ask you, our Father, that you would impress upon us in this season this glory that you gave to sinners. May you be merciful to us and may you help us that we might proclaim these things to a world that so desperately needs to see the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.